Welcome to another edition of the Power Connector Podcast. I'm your host, Derek Dickow, and joining me today is the preeminent public relations professional in the state of Michigan, Mark Winter, who's the president and founder of Identity PR, celebrating their 25-year anniversary this November. And it's exciting for me to have Mark on the show for a couple of reasons. Number one, I'm really interested and curious about his transition, his journey into becoming one of the leading professional public relation firms in the state, but also the diversity of his client base operating in 35 states with 80 clients, more than 40 team members. And so, Mark, it's really an honor to have you on the Power Connector podcast today and uh, just look forward to uh, learning a little bit more about your journey. And I'd love to start this conversation as I start all my conversations with people and learning about what's new and exciting in their world. Yeah, thanks, Derek. I, I really appreciate you having me on today. And there's nothing I love more than talking about people and talking about our company. And I'll, I'll just lead with the probably most exciting thing that's happening for us right now is we're in the process of opening an office in Tampa. And, and we'll talk a little bit about connecting dots, but as I've gotten older and more mature in, in, in my space, and I'm a little bit older than you are, but I've learned, and again, I'll go back and tell a story about where the connecting the dots started from. But today, I'm super focused on making sure that all the waypoints, you know, the dots in my life are, are connected as opposed to being dis disparate. And so Tampa created a, an amazing opportunity for us. One, it's one of the fastest growing cities in the country, uh, which leads to amazing opportunities for us to connect not only with our existing client base that's in Florida, but kind of this emerging business community in that area. Um, I have a graduate M1, which um, Brad Olashansky was the visionary behind that. And we'll talk a little bit about how I've leveraged that garage to make deeper and better connections. But Brad moved on to Tampa to build a second uh, project at I-4 and I-75, and I became an investor in that project as well. So fastest growing city in the country, another opportunity to have this amazing experiential um, piece of real estate in Tampa that I can leverage to meet people, to host people, to connect with people. And again, two dots connected. And then my mom just lives like an hour south of Tampa in Ponte Gorda. And again, you start to connect these dots and one plus one equals three. Yeah, no, I love that. I, you know, I'm a big fan of what Brad has created at, at M1 and it's called the Motor Enclave now in Tampa. It is. And it's a fascinating space for people that aren't familiar, car condos, car garages, but more importantly, and I think I like the way that you talk about activating the space and helping to connect dots, you're leveraging this space to bring people together. And so I'd love to learn a little bit more from you on the science of that and the art that you've developed over the years and not only maintaining relationships with the clients you have, but helping to develop relationships for those by providing them a fun environment and doing something yeah. different. Well, it's, if you'll allow me to go back a little bit, right? Please. So I'm a curious person by nature. I can sit in a, in a small Eagles club at a small town up north and have an amazing, as much of an amazing time as I can sitting at 220 Merrill Street here talking to a CEO, right? And so if kind of go back to, to my life, I grew up in Grand Blanc, which is about an hour north of here on a golf course. And I remember I was, I was about eight years old, and I'm sitting in my buddy's uh, pool, and a ball comes flying over his fence and hits the slide and then goes back into the grass. And so I hop out of the pool, I grab the ball, I go up to the fence, and all of a sudden there's this face peering over. And I'm like, is this yours? And the guy goes, I am so glad that you're handing that back to me. And most people on this golf course are yelling at me because a ball goes into a yard or hits a house. 
He goes, this ball is special to me, and these things cost a fortune, right? And so he reaches into his pocket and hands me a dollar. And I like, I'm like, I'm not taking your buck. I push it back to him. I hand him his ball, and he walked away, and he gave me a huge thank you. In the back of my head, all I could start thinking about was the smile on his face, right? I gave him something back. The fact that everybody else on the golf course complains about it and keeps the balls, right? And the fact that he said that these balls are expensive, right? So that afternoon, I actually got on my bike, rode up to the clubhouse with a pad of paper and wrote down the prices of every single golf ball that they had inside the clubhouse, <laughs> right? Titleists, they're five bucks each. Top flights, four. Pro staffs, three. Yeah. Then I got back on my bike and I rode to Kmart, still existed back then, mm -hmm. and I write down the prices of how much the balls were at Kmart. Then the next day, I went out and followed golfers around the golf course to see which ones were putting them in the middle of the fairway, which ones were spraying them into the woods, and where that was happening, right? And so over the course of the next three weeks, I figured out how to find the balls because I paid attention to, like, people. I paid attention to who was taking out a new ball and when they were hitting that and when they were putting a crappy ball on a tee because they were afraid they were going to hit it into the woods. And then I found a place to set up shop to sell these golf balls <laughs> because I knew what they were worth, right? And so starting to pay attention to the psychology of people, you know, started early. One, paying it forward, giving it back before, right, before I asked for anything. But I found that when I started to sell these golf balls, people would stop. I could start to talk to them about how many golf balls did they lose. They would say they lost three. What kind of golf balls did you use? They had Titleist. I told them what they cost at the clubhouse. I told them what they cost at Kmart. And I said, you can put them back in your bag. And every time that I asked someone and they said they didn't lose a ball, one of their buddies would say, you lost four, right? And it's <laughs> like they would give them a hard time. And, and as I got older, it got a little bit harder to sell those golf balls because I wasn't the cute little kid anymore. So I decided to bring my little sister, right? And she, you know, when she had her hair down, she sold less golf balls than when she had pigtails because they would come to talk to her, right? And again, later I started to figure out that if I could get people to stop and talk to me, I could spend a minute with them, I could figure out a way to sell them those golf balls. So I started giving water for free. I started giving lemonade for free. And they would show up, right? Every single person would go by would stop with that. And if I had them for a second, I could spend a little bit of time connecting with them. And they would buy the golf balls from me, whether they needed them or not. They got con I felt connected to them, and they felt connected to me. And one last thing before we move on, I... I I actually asked a guy to buy golf balls for me one time, and he gave me three of his own. And they were Golden Bear golf balls. And in that same weekend, we had the Warwick Open, the Buick Open, which was at Warwick. And I was watching TV, and the, the guy who had given me the balls was Jack Nicholas. Oh, so wow. he was actually running a like a, a, a pre-Warwick kind of round at Grand Blanc Country Club. And I... The sad part was I sold his golf balls an hour after he gave them to oh, me because no. I didn't know who it was. That's so funny. Yeah. So, I mean, we, we can go back, right, and start to, to figure out where those formative years were, where we started to learn about people, learn how to connect with people, understand what their needs are. And I think most importantly, I found that when I paid it forward and I gave before I got, it created an opportunity for me to have a deeper connection with people. So this started for you at eight years old, it did. by mistake, uh, a golf ball riding into the backyard, and it, it really changed your life and perspective. It really did, and, and I think about it all the time, right? And I put myself, every time I think about taking before giving, I, I, I look back to those days. And again, whether I was lucky or I was smart or was a combination of both of those things, the one thing I know is that I curated that experience, right? I, it was purposeful. 
I took the time to understand what people needed, how they needed it, and how I was going to go about it. I formulated a plan, and then I followed through with it. And so how does that experience transition and to help you lead this company 25 years ago was probably just an idea, right? You just kind of sat down with a notepad. Give me an experience of, of what that was like for you. Yeah, I mean, I, not much has changed in terms of how people think and how they act. I was able to utilize the idea of giving before getting at the very start of our company. So I'll give you an example. So, you know, when you go out on your own and you leave a professional service firm, generally there's a non-compete, so you can't take clients with you, right? So you're starting from scratch. It's scary. Any entrepreneur has to go through that process of taking a leap of faith, right? But if you believe in yourself and you trust in yourself and you have um, the ability to kind of move the metal, it's easier. And so we had an opportunity to go down to Columbus to meet with a large real estate developer to talk about a project they were doing in Pittsburgh. We showed up in the office. I met with the CEO. He told me what his goals were. He told me that he was meeting with five other agencies in Columbus, all of them bigger than us, all of them more established than us. He told me what he needed. And I said, what does success look like for you? I mean, that was the first question I asked him and the last question that I asked him. What does success look like for you? And so Frank said to me, he goes, I want to be inside the magazines that are focused on commercial real estate and retail for the May issues that go to ICSE in Las Vegas, which is the largest real estate convention in the country focused on, on um, retail. And so I said, if I can do that for you, will you hire us? And he said, yes. So we, had a, we shook hands, we left the meeting. I had a four and a half hour drive back to Detroit from Columbus. I dialed up all my friends that were at the trade publications, Shopping Center Business, Shopping Center World, Retail News, talked to every single one of them and secured placements in each of those publications before I landed back in Detroit. As soon as I got to Detroit, I called him back. I said, I have gotten everything that you said that you wanted, that what success would look like to you. Are we on board? And he said, yes. And so that was really the start of our philosophy of how we do business as an agency is we, we pay it forward. We give before we get. And, and it's not always perfect, Derek. I mean, it is. There are going to be times you can't keep score, right? You can't keep score. It's not going to be one-to-one. It's like in any relationship, a marriage, a partnership. There's always going to be someone giving more, and there's always going to be someone getting more. But the reality is, is we're always going to take that approach of giving before getting. It's an important part of building relationships and thinking long-term. I like that you say give before you get. Have you read the Adam Grant book, Give and Take? I have. And he's a local guy. And it's, yeah. uh, it's a, it was an important book for me to read in my development as somebody that understands and appreciates paying it forward. In your business, though, I, I feel, I believe a lot of people ask you for a lot of gratis work, right? Especially in the nonprofit sector. I'd love to learn, and I know you have a lot of clients in the nonprofit space. How do you manage the give and take when they may not have a budget for what you do, or they don't appreciate the placement that you can get them, or the fact that you have these 25-year built-in relationships, so somebody will take your call? How do you manage that? Is there a a cutoff point where you say, you know, I've invested a couple times into this relationship. I know you don't have a budget, but how much more can you give? Yeah, I mean, that's a, it's a great question. I don't delineate a paying client from a not paying client in terms of when we do favors or we help people. 
Um, I like to do good things for good people. And so, and, and the fact that I have an amazing managing partner running our company day to day allows me the flexibility to make those choices myself because in most cases I'm doing the work. I'm not putting it back onto our company or any individual that might already have a full plate. Right. So I, I have the ability to do that. I have the ability to sit on boards and provide, you know, a disciplined approach to how they should be doing things and to provide, you know, counsel based on 30 years of experience in this space. And generally our clients don't ask for favors when it comes to their particular company. They ask for favors when it comes to the things that matter most to them from a nonprofit standpoint, right? And, and I would say that for the most part, they're really good at putting um, bumpers on their asks. They're not asking for things that are overwhelming, right? They might ask for a favor for a phone call. They might have a friend that has a crisis and needs to just have some counsel and I'll spend a half an hour on the phone with them. And that just happened the other day. I, and, and I love doing that. I love helping people. Now, if it's leading to something where we're gonna have to spend 20 or 40 hours worth of time, we need to have a conversation with them because that's how we make our money and that's all we have is time, right? But but when it comes to asking for help, generally people, um, I would say 90% of the people that I have relationships with, I can call them and ask for things and they can call me and ask for things and then there's there's no second thought to whether we're going to help them. Yeah, like how you said that earlier, no, no keeping score. It's right. just kind of, if you can do it, you do it and you just move on. Right. Uh, I'd love to learn a little bit more about your involvement with the ICSC, International Convention for Shopping Centers. It's the biggest, I think, real estate convention in this country. I attended one year in 2014. In fact, it's a funny story. The first day I attended, I wore a suit, tie, and uh, Italian leather shoes. And then the second day I woke up and I wore gym shoes because yeah. it was so much wide. It's like 30,000 people, and it's a city within Vegas. And you can't just go in and just spray and pray. You have to have a targeted approach when you visit with people. And because our time is important and a lot of right. people will budget, you know, 10, 15 minute meetings throughout the day. Do you have a strategy for how you approach large scale events? Is that something that you will spend some time with your clients on? This is how you should approach it. I'd love to get your your thoughts on how you would approach a, a large scale conference like that. Yeah. So, I mean, I think this year was my 28th year going in a row. Mm. So with the exception of, I think, one year of COVID where it got canceled and they moved it to, to New York for a year. But, but you're right. You have to have a plan. You know, it started really with us. And again, whether we were lucky or we were strategic, we created this opportunity to, to meet with our clients all in one place. Most of our real estate clients are sprinkled throughout the country. They're not based here in Michigan. So our ability to spend time with them is limited. When they're in, in Las Vegas, we get to see them all at the same time. And we get to, again, connect another dot, which means there are a bunch of national trade publications, the Wall Street Journal, the New York Times, they're all there covering real estate. And we get blocks of time with them. And then we take them to our clients' booths, right? And so with that block of time, and again, we learned early, we would get a half hour here, a half hour there from reporters. And as you said, it's like a city. So everyone's late going to meetings. And so if you only have a half hour block with a reporter, the chance of them showing up on time is pretty small. But if we have a four hour block with them and they're going to meet with eight clients during that four hours, we control their time. We can move them from space to space, right? So that's on the client relationship side. In terms of developing new business, as we've gotten bigger, like you said, we have 40 people now and we have 80 clients. 
we need to have more than one person covering Las Vegas. So now we send two people to meet with our clients and the reporters. And I spend time actually on kind of new business, moving from, um, from space to space, from potential client to potential client, which I've already preceded before we go there. It's not just walking and asking Hoping for and business praying, cards yeah. and seeing if somebody will meet with you. I can tell you, if they have a choice to be between meeting with me and meeting with Target, they're going to meet with Target, right? They're going to try, they're trying to lease space. And so if I can set up with their marketing directors or their CEOs, depending on how big they are ahead of time, and I can give them a reason to meet with me and a reason not to cancel me when they have another opportunity, that half hour I can spend with them is invaluable. And then the follow-up, right? I'll get in a, on a plane and I'll fly and I'll meet with them in their office as a follow-up to that. So the meeting in Las Vegas is just the beginning. It's not the end of the relationship in terms of meeting with them. Are you doing a significant amount of research on attendees before you come to an event like that? I think like you, Derek, I spend time understanding people before I meet with them yeah. and their companies, right? It, it, we all know what it's like when someone walks in and they have not prepared themselves. I, I want to do business with people I like, whether it's me reaching out to a potential client or me using a vendor partner. I want to find where the connection points are so that our relationship is stronger than just the business we're doing together. And so I'll take the time to truly understand as much as I can find about that person before I show up so that we have some points of connectivity because then it becomes more than just sitting down talking about doing business together. Mm. Now you're building a long-term relationship. You've got some foundational conversation pieces, whether right. it's school, kids. You're bringing into the fun, into the conversation. Exactly. And I honestly... I don't want to talk to them about things that don't interest me, right? It's not authentic. So if I find out someone loves cars and I love cars, then I'm going to spend time talking about cars. If they have a dog and I have a dog, I want to talk about the dog. But if they love cats and I can't stand cats, yeah. I'm not going to talk to them about cats, right? It's just we all know that we, when we're more comfortable and we're more connected, better things happen. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, I've found that to be an important part of conversation opening is finding out what those points are before you get into the room so that there's some base for, you don't want to talk business the entire time. Right. And that's a big part that I think people miss. So early on, you got the deal in Columbus, you drive back, you check all the boxes that they were looking for. That was your first big client. It wasn't all rainbows and sunshine along the way. There were some challenges that you had to oh, overcome. Oh, absolutely. I'd love to learn a little bit more about how you overcame some of them. What were your biggest ones? Yeah, I think, you know, every business hits a ceiling of complexity, right? And so what got you here won't get you there, right? You've probably read that book. And so part of the process is to realize when you're there. And that's a hard thing to do for some people, right? You start hitting a wall and you're continue to do more of the same and you get the same results. And people talk about that all the time. Right. And so I would say as we grew and it, and it, it either had to do with the number of clients that we had or the number of people that we had within our agency, you get to a certain point where you have to reinvest and rethink the business. Right. And reinvesting means you can't continue to just take money out. You need to start putting money back in because it gets more expensive. You need a bigger space. You need better technology. You, um, you need to incentivize your people more and pay them more, right? Because the world's changing. And so each of those things create obstacles or opportunities in front of you that you have, you know, a moment to make a decision on, am I going to stay here, right? Or am I going to get to the next place? And I always tell people there's no such thing as treading water, right? You either have to go forward or you go down. 
And so anybody who's got a lifestyle business that decides that they just kind of want to stay at the same place, it's a much tougher decision to make because the world around you continues to change so dramatically. If you don't change, you're going to get lost. And so our focus has always been when times are the toughest, we're doubling down, right? We're not going to shrivel. We're not going to what I call turtle where we put our head in the sand. We're going to get smart and we're going to figure out how to get to the next place. And and so I would say the 2008, 9, 10 recession was the most difficult time in our company's history in terms of um, realizing that growth is not a continuum and, and clients, there are things out of our control, right? The economy's out of our control. COVID was out of our control. But what we could control, we wanted to make sure we had 100% control of. So what we would do is we would look at 100 things that are kind of in our perfor- periphery and what of those things could we control and how do we make sure that we're doing everything we can to move those things forward? And I think that's probably the best, best advice I could give to people when they're in these times of crisis is to control what you can control. Yeah. The biggest thing you can control is your attitude, the way you react to things, getting up early, simple things. And they're very much blocking and tackling of any small business. I'd love to learn a little bit more how you have responded to the working remote. In your business, there's a lot of mentorship. You bring new people on. They really need to be with you and spend time with their senior leaders, especially at the first two, three, four years of their career. Have you embraced working remotely? Is, is everybody back into your office? How does that work for you guys? Yeah, so my partner, uh, Andrea, and I, and, and my, my two other partners, Aaron and Brandon, we spent a lot of time strategically looking at what the direction of our company was going to be during COVID. And I, and I would say that identity is no different than anyone else. We went into COVID different than we came out of COVID, right? And many companies were already changed before they went into COVID. They just didn't realize it because they didn't get smacked in the face during COVID to really kind of reflect on where they were as an organization. And so, you know, we were in almost 10,000 square feet of space pre-COVID. I knew based on the direction of where we wanted to go and the vision for the company that we would not go back to that space. And so it wasn't about whether we were remote or not remote. It was just that space was not reflective of who we were or who we wanted to be, right? And I always say to people, it's like who you are is 50% reality and 50% like aspiration, right? And so we want to make sure we're putting ourselves in a place that's perfect for the future, right? That's, that's representative of not only who we are today, but who we want to be tomorrow. And so we started looking for spaces in Birmingham. We knew that was really the only place that made sense for us. Our clients live there. It's representative of, of success. And we thought it was representative and, and it created an opportunity for our people to be in a space that they would want to be, right? They could walk to the coffee shops. They could Um, have lunch at a million different restaurants. They could have happy hours in the evenings together. And so we knew it was going to be difficult to get people to want to go back to work because a muscle had been formed of them working from home, right? And so we started to talk about what the vernacular would look like, right? We, like everybody else, do we, are we one day in the office? Are we five days in the office? Are we every other Wednesday? Are we, right? And we saw all of that. And the decision we made was we were going to be remote first. We never changed. We never faltered on our decision. We said, you don't have to be in the office unless there's a meeting and you need to be in any meeting that's in a client's office. And so I can tell you that we didn't lose one person 
during the time frame of coming back were a lot of our peers and a lot of our clients who made kind of forced people back who now had to change their whole lives, putting kids on a bus, getting them off the bus, feeding them. Like everyone's patterns had changed over two and a half years. And so we didn't want to disrupt our people. We wanted to create an opportunity for them to have the best of both worlds, right? Have them have the opportunity to be in the office if they wanted to be, but certainly have the ability to work from home if that was what was working best for them. The second part of your question, you know, if you take a balloon and you squeeze one end of it, that air's got to go somewhere, right? So is it perfect? No. Um, our younger people certainly are not having the same experience that our younger people did five years ago right? They're, they're not able to walk into someone's office or tap someone on the shoulder. Certainly we have Zoom and we have phone calls, but it's not the same, right? Facial expressions aren't the same. When I have a difficult conversation with someone and I can sit there and look them in the eye, it's different than trying to do that, you know, over the phone or, or over Zoom. So there's a piece missing that we haven't quite figured out yet. I don't think anyone's quite figured out, but we're curating opportunities to put people together, right? So we're taking our entire company um, not next week, but the following week up to Traverse City to celebrate our 25th anniversary. And we're doing two days of off-sites with some really cool experiential connective type um, experiences that we're going to do together. And then we're doing that once a quarter. And then in between there, we're doing some other fun stuff to get people together along with team meetings and client meetings. So we're just being purposeful. It used to happen more randomly, and now we have to curate it, right? And so... Again, not perfect, but, but I believe that we made the best choice for our company, and it's certainly proven that both in our utilization of our people's time and our ability to keep our people. Yeah, I like that. Uh, introducing and being more intentional about experientiality and getting people to do fun projects for team building. I think that that, you'll find, is even better than maybe just being in the office all day sitting around in front of a computer. Yeah, I mean... We used to think that buying Cordoba lunch and bringing it into the office, right, or doing a happy hour at 4 o'clock on a Friday and having beer and wine was, was creating culture. And so we were forcing culture, right? And, and I believe that our culture now is more authentic. I believe we were taking the 360 totality of our employees' lives into consideration more than we did. Had we not been pushed into COVID, I never would have made the decision uh, for us to be uh, a remote first organization, right? So, so this, this crisis created opportunity. And that's like what I said to you, almost every single crisis that we've had in our company's history has created opportunities to do things that I never would have expected could have been done had we not been in an environment that forced us to do that. Were there any important mentors that you had along in the early part of your career or even today that have helped you impact your decision-making? So a very close friend, and I would say probably the most influential mentor, it was David Trott. So um, David uh, took a small law firm and turned it into a real estate empire. You know, he, he, you know, people may or may not love the fact that he was in the foreclosure business, but he, he um, executed on a service that was necessary, right? Um, he had amazing title companies that he bought and then sold and then created and then sold. Um, at one point, he rolled up two large um, real estate companies in Birmingham. Uh, he bought the old office that um, 
that um, one of the big tech companies had had left in Farmington Hills before they moved downtown. And so just brilliant. Everything he touched created opportunities. And and of course, you know, it was kind of his his crescendo in his career was was uh, becoming a U.S. congressman. And, and our agency was lucky enough to help him um, get elected and work through that process. And that was great. But but, you know, he had told me one time, which was really interesting, Derek, he you know, as close as we were and as much time as we spent together, I asked him to go golfing with me one time. And he goes, Mark, he goes, I'm your friend. He goes, I'm glad to serve as your mentor. He goes, but if I'm going to spend five hours on the golf course, I'm going to do that with a client. And, and it was weird. I was trying to figure out how to take it. Um, I mean, he had bought books for my kids when they were born. We spent tons of time together. I'm like, why does he not want to go golfing with me, right? And when I started to process it, I started to understand a little bit more about just how the world works and how, how precious time is. If I would have asked him to spend four hours with me talking about my business, he would have done it in a second, in a right? Yeah. He would have done it in a second. And so, you know, part of that story like resonates with me and how I go about how I spend my time now, right? We talked about the garage. Um, I, I'm okay golfer. I'll I'll be like a bogey golfer no matter if I play 40 times or four times. And and I tolerate it. If somebody asks me and it's a client, I'll go with them. But if if a vendor asks me, I won't I won't do it, right? But the garage at M1, I love cars. I love going on the track. So if anybody wants to go there, I'm I can connect the fact that I love doing it with the time that I spend with them, right? And so that was and Dave loves to play golf. Right. And, but he's going to play, he's going to play with Steve Eiserman at, at Oakland Hills. He's not going to play with me. Yeah. Right. Um, so I think those little, those little things, um, you know, coming from a mentor and again, he was telling me something without telling me something. Mm -hmm. Right. But, but we have to listen, you know, that's part of this whole relationship. And then you have to be willing to ask, you have to be willing to ask for time. And I can tell you when he asked me if I would host his dad out at M1 and take him in the cars, he's a car guy that came out of Ford and I have a Ford GT 500 and he was just like loving the fact that he was going to get a chance to drive in that on the track. Of course, I'm going to take his dad out. Right. I, I, not only did I move everything on my schedule to do that, I felt so good about putting a chip back to him, you know, because he's never asked for anything. And that's, you know, that's the, the beauty of a mentor is, is, they get as much energy out of helping um, or more energy out of helping, right, than in, and never asking anything in return. Yeah, it's very interesting. Uh, he, he won't play golf with you, but he'll do anything you need to help you grow your business. I, wow, profound. I like that approach. Something different. Yep. Yeah, I wouldn't think about that. Do you develop at this stage in your career different mentors for different areas of your life or interests? Yeah, I think as I've gotten older, I, I feel like, my life has become more segmented in terms of my friends and my relationships. There's different people in different spaces, right? So now I have this whole new world of people who love cars, that design cars, that have access to different cars. Um, and, and that world is living kind of in its own space. And then I have my business, you know, client type world that, that, um, is more focused on how do we get from here to there from a business standpoint. I have an EO community of people who are all entrepreneurs that, that we share a common um, love and passion for growing our businesses, right? And then I have 
family friends that are part of the community with my kids and my wife and 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 trying to figure out how to balance all those things and then when appropriate bring them together is fun yeah right it it's fun because many times that's how great new relationships form is when you start to put people together from different pockets right kind of like your groups you know, you've got a, a real estate group and you've got others as you're kind of pulling these power connections. It would be kind of fun at some point to figure out some way to intermingle those folks and see where those connection points are. Yeah, that's the fun, creative challenge that I have is finding ways to add value and making sure I'm bringing people together that are qualified introductions where both people walk away and like, I really appreciate him taking time to do that. that that's important for me. And that makes me feel good. And I know it does for you too. It does. I'd love to... Uh, talk a little bit more about how you connect the dots on the philanthropic side of things, because I'm sure at one point I heard that there's 70,000 nonprofits in the state of Michigan. It's probably a lot of duplication, you know, it's the old 80, 20 rule. So how do you, and you got a big heart and you like to help people and that's the nature of being in public relations. How do you determine where you spend your time and who you're going to take on as a client in philanthropy? So we might be a little different than other agencies. We don't really seek out nonprofits as clients. They typically can't afford us. Many of them have needs that are greater than they can afford. And so what we tend to do is for nonprofits, we'll either do it pro bono or we'll do it through a board position that I'm sitting on. And we're typically all in, right? So instead of spreading out our relationship over five or six different organizations, we're all in on one. And so right now, my focus is on Thaw. And so the Heat and Warm Fund, it's an organization that provides utility assistance. So heat, water, and also education on how people can make a more sustainable home so that they can afford to keep the lights on, keep, make sure that the house is heated, and make sure that they have clean running water. And so there's a lot of support for this organization between you know, the utilities, Consumers Energy, and DTE, there's state funding and there's national funding, but what they need, you know, from a, from a PR standpoint and a communication standpoint is how to make sure that we're getting the message out to more of the donors and to actually provide opportunities um, for more people who need the assistance to understand where they can get it. And so, you know, if you think of a board, everyone's looking for an attorney, they're looking for board members that have access into funding, right? And, and PR and marketing is a big piece of any organization trying to understand how we can leverage the, the um, person's experience and relationships to help the organization get to the next level. And so, you know, I've been on the thought board now for six years, and I can tell you that one of the reasons why I selected Thaw was that almost – 90 cents of every dollar that gets raised goes into programs. And that's a difficult number to achieve for any organization, right? That means their overhead is really only 10%. And so anybody who's giving, you know, when we have a message, a true message that we can share, that's a public relations and marketing person's dream when you have a message and you can say that 90 cents out of every dollar goes to helping people. Mm. Yeah, that's, uh, is it Santiel Jenkins it is, is. is the leader of that? Yeah, She no. is, yeah. She used to be on the D Detroit City Council. Yeah. And, um, and yeah, she's an amazing leader and, um, you know, cares so much about people. And everyone thinks of Thaw just being Detroit, but Thaw is a statewide organization. So everywhere in the UP to, you know, 
Sheboygan and Gaylord and Traverse City. There's there's people in need across the state. And yeah. so, I mean, I think something like, I would say that of the households that get the assistance, 75% of them either have an elderly person in there or kids. And so this isn't just people who, you know, you might have a mindset that they're not working, you know, and, and they're not working, but they could be working. Think about kids going home and not having the lights on, you know, in the wintertime, you know, from school or from an after-school program, right? Or the fact that people are having to heat their house with their stoves versus, you know, having consumers energy with, with gas. And so it's a, it's an amazing organization and anybody who, who cares about people should look at it and, and add it to their list of potential places that they, that they could give. Yeah. Basic necessities that people take exactly. for granted. I mean, you and I fortunately have never been in that situation. Also ethnic communities that would benefit from maybe a language barrier. And, and, and Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, uh, you know, the most families don't even have, in a lot of these areas, don't even have vehicles, right, to get to place to place. Or they're taking care of kids or they're taking care of elderly, which means they can't leave the house to go to a job. Um, there is a, a, a whole cycle of issues that lead to people not being able to pay their utilities. And it's, I'm just so thankful, and all of us. So you're, you're doing it already because there's a, there's a small surcharge on your DTE bill that helps to go to fund some programs like this. And so we're all helping in a small way, but it's, it's in the wintertime when it's, you know, when it's 20 below zero, you start to think about people who, who are, you know, snuggled up together with sleeping bags because they don't, you know, they don't have the warmth in their house in order, or they don't have the utilities in their house to keep it warm. And, and the other part is, is they're living in houses that are hundred years old that, that aren't sealed properly. And so that's where the education comes in is trying to teach people how to better um, make their home sustainable so that all the heat that gets put in stays in as opposed to leaving through windows that are cracked and so on. Yeah, we had a problem with outages this, this winter, pretty severe problem. And so these people, they come to you directly for support. Yeah. Yeah, noble work. So you take a, you go an all in approach with one charity that you care the most about, and then it's a five-year commitment so far is a lifetime commitment you know i think i'll i personally will will continue to to give to thaw uh and perpetuity just because i i understand the need and and i'm so close to it I, you know once you've been in it it's really hard to get out of it i can't commit how long I'm, it's going to be my focus um I, I am working with another buddy right now that's that's um working on a program in royal oak for the homeless and so um our agency will either be supporting it um, pro bono or an individual will sit on the board. But the, the focus is to try to, and it, and it helps me marry real estate, my passion for real estate with, with helping people because my buddy actually owns a development company and they do multifamily and they've secured a piece of property that they think that they're going to be able to build some housing on, which will allow people to have a place to live, which is more than just having a place for them to sleep on a floor at night in a church and have a meal, but really creating an opportunity for people to have a home um, that they could call their home, that it will be an apartment that will be, have the ability to give back some dignity uh, for these folks who, who don't have a place to stay. Yeah. That's sad stuff. I see it all the time. Even on the corner at Maple and Woodward, we see people with signs and it's, it's unfortunate. It's close to home and there's gotta be a better answer. There's housing available. There's money available. Maybe not a, enough, media attention right which is where you come into play yeah. right Help yeah. knock on doors and 
and get get that message out there. You know, I don't always know who listens to these programs, but I do know that there are people aspiring for more. And somewhere out there is maybe a 22 to 28-year-old PR professional who wants to become what you are today. And so do you have any any advice for them? I think that's a great question, Derek. Listen, I, I didn't go to U of M. I didn't go to Harvard. I didn't go to Columbia. I went to Western, which I loved the school. But I've out-hustled to get where I'm at. And so just showing up, you know, with the best version of yourself, you know, is critical, especially for our young people. There's so much noise out there about trying to find balance in your life and trying to make sure that you have this 360 degrees. And, and we've tried to coin at the agency that pressure, pressure is a privilege, that, that being in a cooker and being in a place that expects more and, and provides more is a privilege. And so the sooner people can learn that and the sooner they can find a way to integrate their personal life and, and their work life, right? So it's not work-life balance, it's work-life integration. How do, you, how do you create a passion and you love it so much that, that you want it to be a part of your life versus disconnecting those two things, right? And so I would tell somebody, if you can't do that, then don't go into that world, right? PR is tough. There's no on or off button, right? We do crisis communications and we do proactive stuff for people. And so, you know, it's, we, we you know, tell our clients that we're there so they can sleep well at night, which when that happens, that means sometimes we don't, right? In order for that to happen. And so we try to find people that are game lovers that literally wanna be a part of something bigger than themselves. And so, we actually changed this year and went from having interns to having apprentices. And the idea was to take people, instead of it being a idea of being a start and a stop and a place where you could just kind of put something on your resume, we wanted it to, to be a, a bridge to being, you know, a member of our team, which means we paid them more. Don't pay them like an intern, pay them like an employee. It's still a short term stint, but it's like, if you can do the things that we need you to do, we will hire you. Almost like I said to the client, what does success look like? We can tell them what success looks like. If they're willing to show up, they're willing to give, they're willing to give us their best version of themselves, they're gonna have an opportunity to be great, right, in our agency. And then we also tell people there's no room to just sit on the bench. You gotta keep sliding down, right? And, and I love visuals so that people can think, you can't just come in and plop down and this is gonna be what you're gonna do for your whole career here, right? Because <laughs> yeah. I can't have people sitting on your lap because they're going to do that. They're going to bounce on top of your lap and go to the next place. And so that doesn't mean you can't grow slow because people grow at different speeds. But if you're not moving down the bench, then we don't have a place for you. And, and that's not a knock on any one person. It's the fact that, you know, it's a moving target, Derek, right? If I, if I asked you on a scale of, you know, this is I know nothing, this is I know everything, if you told me that you are up here and you know everything, if it stays there, then you and I aren't going to have another conversation because I usually do that with people and I'm like, I'm here. And yeah. Every week I take a step forward and I go a step back, not because I'm getting worse, but the world around me is changing so dramatically that I have to be able to adapt to it. And so if we have a mindset of continually learning, continually growing, um, I can work with people like that. Yeah. No, oh, I love that. That's great advice, by the way. I hope it you folks at home uh, got a chance to embrace what Mark said. 
I will end this conversation embracing what you said to start it, which is integrating your life for the next 25 years. I love the fact that you went out and invested in Tampa in that deal because you love it. You're passionate about it. Also a real estate play, which is great. Right. Your mother lives an hour away and you're growing your practice down there because these are all the ways that you want to spend the next 25 years of your life. And so there's an important lesson to learn even for me on that. So thank you for that. You're welcome. Uh, this has been great. I appreciate it. Any, uh, closing thoughts. I appreciate you having me. Yeah. Uh, thanks for what you're doing for the community. I Thank think you. you're a a glowing representative of what it could be, you know, if you take the time to make solid relationships and and create opportunities for others to make relationships because whether you're a people person or not, this is work. It's not just you show up and because you're a good person, good things are going to happen. Like I said, you have to curate it in order for it to be successful. Yeah. I appreciate that very much. Thank you for your time today. I hope you've enjoyed this conversation with Mark Winter, president and founder of Identity PR. Covered a lot of things today, his journey, his successes, some challenges along the way, some of his best practices, and mostly his mindset, which is all about thinking about the future and going hard and going all in. I love that concept. Thank you, Mark. It's an honor to have you on the show. Thank you. We'll see you soon on the Power Connector podcast.